Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 45 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 11th of December. And Leon, what do we have on the menu for this week? Well, uh, we're having a chat with John Ellis about Investorus. It's a B2B off-the-plan property sales platform that promotes and distributes investment properties to Australia and the globe through real estate agents, financial planners, accountants and advisors. Very interesting. It's the only one of its kind in the world, apparently. and really doing well globally. Yes, it has. And then we're going to have a chat with uh, economist Saul Leslake, and he's going to give his assessment of the government's $1.1 billion innovation package. Yeah, he's, he's pretty upbeat on it. Uh, he's got some criticism, but uh, he thinks, you know, it's a bit of energy getting into the country. That's right. But anyway, first of all, let's have a chat with John Ellis. John, investorist business, I mean, you guys sell off-the-plan real estate and you do it around the world. Tell us about it. Yeah, we we uh, we don't so much sell the properties, but we distribute them. So, so we have on our site now about $35 billion in off-plan property. $35 billion. Yeah, located in Australia, the UK, and, uh, and a spattering internationally from places like Thailand, Philippines, parts of Spain. And then we have members who are all businesses. Uh, they're all agents, financial planners, mig- migration agents, and the like through, through the world. We've got 4,000 of them. And these are your clients, principally? These are our clients, and they use our platform to access property, and they use our technology to streamline their business. So we're a very unusual business, the, the only one in the world at the moment. So you distributed the profit properties for them we do yeah so if you if you think about our business uh like a cross between a an online classifieds business uh, a business to business dating service and a software as a service model that that's probably the most likely part so did you come up with the idea or it's unique i did i did i came up with the idea uh probably about five or six years ago what sparked it so in most industries you have an aggregation of information it's it's readily available so if you if you if you want to book a hotel in Sydney, uh, you can jump online and get onto Expedia and raft of other websites and you can find information on that hotel and book it. I've been in off-plan property marketing for over 10 years and that is not the case in off-plan property marketing. You rely on thousands of spreadsheets coming from different people and there's emails and it's a, it's a real mess with no clear clear source of information. It's kind of like 15 years ago booking a hotel. You'd call up Flight Centre and say, hey, I want to book a hotel in Sydney near the rocks on these dates. And they'd come back to you with three lots of availability. When you chose the one, it would be missing. That's that's off the plan property or it was off the plan property before Investorist. So so that, that desire to have um, clear, transparent information drove us to come up with the, the idea. And you set up two years ago. So we launched two years ago. Um, it was an overnight success about five years in the making. So we started building our technology um, about three years before we launched. And there were many, many iterations and many little pilots up until a, a launch in August of 2013. We launched with $2.5 billion in stock, 45 projects, almost no marketplace to, to purchase those, those properties. And and a business model that was completely different then to it is now. So now you're, you've got a w- basically a worldwide network, haven't you? We do, yeah. So where are you in? So we, uh, we raised our, fir- our first lot of seed capital just over 12 months ago, and we used that to, to start expanding nationally and internationally. Our first office we opened was in Queensland. Uh, then we quickly opened one in, in Sydney, then went to Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, uh, Shanghai, 
and then London. Subsequently, we've moved our Malaysian operation to to Singapore, and we've also set up offices in Beijing. Uh, we just raised more capital about three months ago, and we're using that to open open offices in in the USA. The market here is basically investor driven, isn't it? Is it not? Predominantly, predominantly. So off the plan property is very different to normal residential property. Normal residential property, you would typically appoint a sole agent. Uh, there's only one property. It's, it's very simple. You put a board out the front. You'd put an ad in the local paper. You'd put an ad online, and people would come and buy and buy that property. A, a multi-story high-rise might have 500 units in the in the whole development, and a developer has a has a clear requirement to pre-sell a large portion of those before they can get their construction funding. So our industry relies on lots and lots of purchases, and they typically are investors. And they would maybe bulk buy a building or say even not just single uh, single units. Yeah, quite often people will buy multi-units, um, but predominantly it is many, many individuals making up the, the whole amount. Uh, you may have, uh, for example, one of, the, one of the recent developments in the CBD had 185 individual agencies that sold that property. 185 agencies? Agencies, so 185 different companies were involved in the sale of that development. So, and where were you sitting above that? Doing so, we we streamline those sales. So, we have the one live availability list to prevent double selling. Uh, We've got a raft of documents online to allow them to keep really good document control, uh, and we and we manage communication flow so everyone knows where where they're at at any given point in time. Because if you're trying to sell about a thousand units in a couple of months using 185 different participants, uh, you need some technology. A bit like herding cats. Herding cats. Do you have? I mean, do you have people actually operating out of places like, say, Beijing or Singapore? Yes, we do. And how do you find that? It is increasingly complex. Uh, we have uh, a new general manager in in our Shanghai office um, who manages the the team across all of China. Uh, myself, I'm traveling to China again in, in three weeks. I have staff regularly traveling from our office in Australia to all of our remote offices. But we, we do find time zones and language differences and regional variances in the, in, the, in the business model increasingly challenging. So we rely on weekly Skype meetings with our teams. Um, we have to have very tight systems and processes and, and controls around everything from billing um, we have many, many members, so 4,000 members paying a very small amount of money each monthly. Um, you can imagine accounting becomes quite problematic in our, our company. We have an equal focus, I, I think, on on people and on, on processes. So we ramp up with growth for about three months. <laughs> then we consolidate for about a month and get things right. And then we go on our next growth plan. The Chinese real estate market must be quite difficult to keep a, th- a finger on, wouldn't it? I mean, it's changing constantly and it's ups and downs. Because we don't list stock in China, um, it's, a, it's a key benefit for us. We have buy markets and sell markets. Um, Australia is a sell market. You, you would read in the paper that, it, that Australian properties are sold to, to Asian investors every day. Uh, the UK is also a sell market, um, partly into Asia, but also into the Middle East and to Europe. So, so in China and and Singapore, they are very much buy markets. So we have agents there that are interested in stock in Australia, not so much the other way around. And where are they mainly targeting? In Australia? Yes. Uh, so the, the key markets for foreign investment in Australia at the moment are Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. 
probably in that order. Sydney is highly priced and it's in very high demand, but it is more of a local market than an international market. And Brisbane is certainly emerging as a, as a hot place for, for people to buy. And Melbourne is there because it's uh, more moderately priced than Sydney, I would imagine. Yeah, look, there are a number of factors in play there. Um, there's certainly supply-demand factors uh, that, are, that are considered, but, but Melbourne is, is well-regarded as a global city. It's great education, there's good transport and infrastructure. It's one of the world's most livable cities consistently. So people are looking at Melbourne and seeing it's a, it's a great place to invest. And it's growing very quickly and there's a lot of construction here. There's a lot of construction um, and again, that's supply-demand factors at play there. Melbourne has a really, historically has had a good planning scheme. Um, so it's meant that development here has been able to to continue on where in other parts of Australia, like, like Sydney, for example, they've had a fair, fairly choked supply. So now you deal you deal with a developer at the beginning or and provide him with the service or how does it actually work in your business model? So if you if you take our our software as a service component out of the equation, then it's very simple. So a property developer or a lead real estate agent, and typically our stock is listed by a lead real estate agent, a CBRE, a Knight Frank, or a JLL, um, they will list the stock on our site. The same way as, a, as an agent would list a property on domain or in the newspaper, you're right. And then they, they will pay us a, a fee to list that property. It will be advertised in our list. There are then a raft of quite complex ways they can distribute that stock. So they can choose individual agents or choose the whole marketplace or slice and dice however they like. And then on the other side, on our buy side, we have our agents um, and they will log into a form of their system. They will then view that stock. Uh, and and they can reserve it online, complete contracts of sale online, and and monitor those all the way through to settlement. So a lot of people say that the real estate market at the moment is fairly volatile. Um, are you finding that volatility in your area, or is it pretty steady? That's pretty steady. Um, volatility volatility occurs in in the real estate market weekly and monthly. Um, it, it it is it is a naturally very volatile market always on a weekly and monthly basis. We tend to view things on a quarter by quarter basis and we find that our industry is quite stable quarter on quarter. It's interesting though that um, and this is actually replacing newspapers as a as a source. I mean, so newspapers are actually going out of business because of these sorts of models. I think tra- for off-plan property marketing, traditional media does not work very effectively. For off-the-plan property, it is very much a business-to-business marketplace. We, we estimate on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia, over 70% of the market is business-to-business. So for that side of the market, newspapers and, and traditional online classified models do not work. So it's just contact between an investment, could be a super fund, could be anybody, directly to yourself. A developer or an agent, yeah. Or a developer or an agent via you, or then you take it over. We, we, facilitate, we facilitate the introductions and we facilitate the, the transactions and, and we do that as, as just a piece of software. So we don't get involved in the commission. We don't get involved in the, in the money transfer. It'd be, it'd be quite nice if we could get involved in the money transfer. More than, 50, more than $500 million 
worth of transactions flow through our site every month. So it would be quite nice if we could take a small percentage of that. Clip the ticket, yeah. It'd be nice to clip the ticket, but that's definitely not our business model and never will be. You're, you're a service company. We're a service company. And they pay you for the listing. Correct. Basically. Yeah. yeah so we have a very, we have a very good, a good business and a very good business model without needing to get involved in commission, which is our client's business. Did you design the software? Me personally, I think I did some basic business analyst services, but I'm extremely fortunate. I've got a great team. I own an advertising agency called Extension. That is full of brilliant designers. We are brilliant software engineers. We now have over 20 software engineers working full-time on our, on our product. 20? 20. That's expensive. It's very expensive. We've got 11 in Australia that are sitting in the office just behind us. Uh, and then we have a small team of, of nine in, um, in Chennai, India. And are you, are you looking to keep recruiting engineers? Yes, we are. Yes, we have another three, three positions for software engineers out at the moment. We're looking for a, a front end, a back end and a full stack developer. Is it, is it a challenge finding talented engineers? When, when you're first starting a, a startup business, I think your challenge is growing your marketplace. When you have, when you have a, a scale up business like ours, your challenge is always people and it's always recruitment. And we, and we, sh- we don't struggle, um, but we do find um, it a constant challenge and a constant thing we have to work on to, to find the best people, uh, then to train them effectively, and then to retain them. We, we've gone in, in 12 months from four people to 40. That's a big That's achievement a in, in the market that you're operating in. Yeah, it is. To get the, this number of people of sufficient talent. Yeah, it's a challenge. John Ellis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your time. Thank you, John. Well, what's he got? He's got uh, thousands of clients and billions of dollars worth of properties, and he's capitalizing on the Asian property boom in Australia, of course, and elsewhere. Doing very, very well. Very comfortable, I would think. And uh, now, Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, what's your take on the innovation package? I think the package overall is pretty good. It does seek to even the playing field as far as the tax system is concerned between investment in essentially speculative assets like shares and property, which has always been favourably treated by the Australian tax system, and investment in innovative businesses. So that ought to remove or at least reduce one of the reasons why Australian innovation has had difficulty attracting capital in the way that it has in the United States. Also welcome is the restoration of funding to the CSIRO and a couple of other high-profile science-based projects like the Australian Synchrotron and the general changes to the bankruptcy law that reduce the risk and stigma associated with corporate failures that's quite often a feature of the innovation process in the United States is also, I think, a useful step in changing the culture around Australian innovation. Now, I'm not sure that these measures taken together will lift Australia from the bottom of some international rankings of various aspects of innovation, such as collaboration between businesses and universities or commercialization of different types of inventions, but they certainly should have have us moving in the right direction. But the the fundamental issue, I think, I feel with the innovation package is it's more about getting people to create technology rather than use the existing technology. And the, the issue is that most of the technology Australians use originates offshore. We, we, we originate very little of it. 
that's true, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because a lot of innovation does actually come from applying technologies that have been invented elsewhere in ways that may not have been used elsewhere to produce new goods and services or reduce the cost at which existing goods and services are produced or in other ways better fulfil the requirements and needs or expectations of customers. Uh, but there's also, I think, room to improve Australia's performance at the top end of the innovation chain where the available evidence from organisations such as the OECD says that we aren't doing nearly as well as a country with our incomes and standards of education do. Now, as I say, I'm not sure that all of these measures taken together will lift Australia to the top of those rankings and there are probably other things that in time need to be given some attention, such as the incentive structures facing academics and universities more broadly in seeking to uh, support innovative commercial activities rather than simply judge themselves by how many research grants they get from government or how often articles written by their academic staff are published and cited in learned journals. But that's something that's going to take time. The issue is, I mean, Gary and I were talking about it yesterday, that, uh, is that uh, we've seen innovation packages with every government. I mean, we saw it with uh, uh, Julia Gillard. We saw it with uh, Kevin Rudd. We saw it with Keating. We saw it with Hawke. I mean, this goes back a long, a long time, and yet they all seem to have very short lifespans. I think that's partly because innovation has never had a senior political champion uh, in the way that it now does with Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister and because the various measures that governments have introduced ostensibly to support Australia's innovation effort have therefore been vulnerable to periodic efforts by treasurers and others to reduce budget deficits and thus in pursuit of that aim, cutting back expenditures or tax breaks. That's what happened, for example, with Australia's long-standing R&D tax concessions in the final years of the Gillard government. The fact that there's now higher political priority being given to innovation may well mean that these measures, if they prove effective, have a longer life. And to his credit, Malcolm Turnbull has acknowledged that some of these measures may not work and will need to be replaced. After all, that's the basis on which innovation takes place. As Mr Turnbull has again said, you in many cases learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. So provided that frame of mind continues and that the government is prepared to modify this package to discard measures that don't work and to take up alternative suggestions that might work better, then I think we're starting in a pretty good place. So one of the things Bill Ferris was saying this morning was that actually we're not bad at innovation, but we're awful at commercialisation. What do you think? I think there's a fair amount of truth to that statement. Uh, many people can reel off a list of things going from the Hills Hoist and the Cochlear and the Black Box Flight Recorder, among others, that have been invented in Australia, but the commercialisation and the substantial profits associated with those products have uh, accrued to companies and businesses offshore. Uh, 
I hope that, at least at the margin, the measures announced this week will start to make some changes to that. But it's not something that's going to happen quickly. It's something that I think will come as the result, if it does, of quite a long process of cultural change in the way our higher education institutions and our businesses think and work with each other. So we're talking here about a matter of years before we see any real results from this. I think that's probably right. And if you look at the countries which are much more successful in innovation and commercialisation of research and development than Australia's been, uh, they didn't achieve these results overnight either, but they're the result of uh, things that they started with that might have been different from from Australia and a long process of evolution rather than one of revolution. So the other point uh, that's often made is that the strictures on company directors uh, makes them extremely cautious. Do you think that's a factor? I think risk aversion is a problem and Australians, like people in other countries, have become more risk averse over the last 15 years in part because, I believe, of the way that governments have used the threat of terrorism as a way of imposing more obligations on directors and increasing their costs and generally making them fearful of the unknown. One of the things that I welcome about Malcolm Turnbull's ascension to the Prime Ministership is the way he seems to be toning down the dial of the scaremongering that had become a feature of governments in Australia, as in some other countries over the last 15 years. And I hope that that continues, notwithstanding the fact that there are real threats to be dealt with. I would like to think that some of the regulatory overreaction to the financial crisis might also with time be toned down and of course the changes to the bankruptcy laws are a genuine attempt on the part of the government to reduce at least one of the things that might prompt directors of companies to be more risk averse than they need to be. But we're talking here about a massive cultural change aren't we? Yes, we are, and that's why I've used that phrase a couple of times in this conversation already, that innovation is in part a state of mind and people often talk about the ecosystem around the innovation process and that too is another way of highlighting that uh, it's as much cultural as it is economic and much of what these, these measures are seeking to do is about shifting the culture in business and in our higher education institutions uh, partly by tweaking incentives but also by providing some fairly tangible signals about what the government thinks is important. Failure is a badge of honour in Silicon Valley and, and places like Tel Aviv, but uh, here it's, it's, here it's uh, you're, you're marked for life. Yes, that's uh, very much the case, and this is in some important respects an attempt to change that in the same way that most Australians have seen investment in property as the primary means of increasing their wealth over time, and the tax system has underscored that bias in the minds of Australians by preferentially taxing uh, the financial arrangements associated with property investment. This is a reasonable attempt to level the playing field, as it were, between investments that might lead to greater innovation and investments that simply rely on other factors pushing the price of financial assets or real estate up. Well, we'll, we'll take a look and see where it is in a few years' time. 
Indeed. Uh, the one aspect of these proposals which I would be critical of and that's worth mentioning, however, is that they are still infected by the coalition's romantic views about small business. There seems to be an assumption here that the only innovation that requires support from government is innovation that's done by small business. Now, while the coalition does have... Uh, rather romantic view about the inherent nobility of small businesses and the people who run them. The fact is that much of the innovation that is done in other countries that are more successful at it than we are is done by big companies rather than necessarily by small ones. And there's nothing particularly in this statement that encourages Australia's biggest companies to be more innovative. If you think about the innovations that are front of mind in discussions of technology around the world at the moment, many of those have come out of big companies rather than the mythical startups. So Les like thank you very much for your time. And that's a pleasure and Leon thank you to all those who've listened to these podcasts over the course of the year and I hope people have a Christmas happy Christmas and a prosperous 2016. Thank you very much Saul and same to you same to you as well. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, what do you think, Leon? How do you see it? Well, I keep remembering that uh, every government, we've seen every government come out with innovation plans. I kept on thinking of John Button's plan. For the motor industry, it's about to disappear in this country. I'm really quite dubious about it. And the problem, too, is that a lot of these innovation plans only last about 18 months. Bear in mind that if we don't get on the horse we ain't gonna ride and that's about where we're at well yes and i think uh, as saul said the the most positive thing about this is that we have a champion with innovation in malcolm turnbull and and there's a bit more confidence around the place and confidence is always help helpful okay now leon the news for start the value of china's imports and exports has fallen again showing the impact of tumbling commodity prices and a weakening domestic economy in local currency terms the value of imports fell 5.6 percent year on year in november exports were down 3.7 percent china's surplus narrowed it still remains a substantial 343 billion won or 53 billion dollars and the continued decline in imports suggests that demand, domestic demand in China remains weak. Of course, the big story for the week was the uh, government's $1.1 billion innovation package. That, will be, that money will be spent in the next four years to promote business-based research, development and innovation. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull unveiled his much-anticipated innovation statement in Canberra, saying he wanted to drive a so-called ideas boom. A key focus of the plan involves around strengthening ties between the business community, universities and scientific institutions. A 200 million dollar innovation fund will co-invest in businesses that develop technology from the CSIRO and Australian universities. Money has also been set aside to help students in year five and seven learn coding. Early stage investors in startup businesses will get a 20% non-refundable tax offset and a capital gains tax exemption. Those investing in new early stage venture capital partnerships will get a 10% offset. Mr Turnbull said the changes would help Australia transition away from the mining boom. Among the packages, other major initiatives are $106 million in tax incentives for angel investors to provide seed funding in the early years for ventures creation, $75 million to the CSIRO's data research arm, Data61, $30 million for a cybersecurity growth centre to create business opportunities in cybersecurity, which the government spends $5 billion on each year, $15 million over four years towards a $200 million CSIRO innovation fund, $10 million over four years towards a $250 million biomedical translation fund in partnership with the private sector. And Australia is wanting to take their ideas into 
internationally will also be supported through a $36 million global innovation strategy, helping them get started in Silicon Valley, Tel Aviv and other locations, as well as a $22 million funding project with Germany's Fraunhofer Institute. Insolvency laws will also be relaxed for startups which fail. The default period for bankruptcy will will be reduced from three years to one year. Australia's failing maths and science standards are also being addressed through a $48 million science, technology and engineering mathematics literacy program. $14 million is being set aside to encourage women and girls into the sector and $51 million to promote digital literacy. And Industry Minister Christopher Bynes says the bulk of the 24 measures in the government's plans will start from July 2016. So it's pretty busy in there. I, I think so. But look, Gary, I think this statement misses the opportunity to be more innovative because it doesn't clearly state what is the use of innovation that's more important than the generation of innovation. Frankly, an innovation that isn't used is of no value focuses on the creation of technology rather than the use of technology and implies that the main benefit to Australians from innovation is from local innovation as opposed to overseas innovation. But that all global innovations occurs in countries other than Australia. Well, yeah, but I mean, the idea surely is to get generate some here. Yeah, but there's no point in Australia trying to replicate discoveries from overseas. So the innovation statement should have had a greater focus on encouraging Australian businesses to use innovations as well as develop their own and then they can use that to become more innovative. One of the interesting bits of data research recently shows that the number of women in technology is is growing, but slowly. But they're not interested in coding. They produce the ideas and then find the coder. So that, and that becomes important. And that's all part of innovation too. Now, in the best piece of news for retailers, consumer confidence has bounced back, retracing most of the falls seen in the last three weeks, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. Consumer confidence jumped 3.1% in the midweek week ending the 6th of December. But then the latest Westpac Melbourne Institute sentiment index found consumer confidence slip after two upbeat months because of the cooling housing markets, talk of a rise in GST and worries about financial family finances. A lot of scare stuff about GST, including, you know, how many billion dollars Australian families going to lose, which is largely rubbish. The Grattan Institute has put forward a model that would allow the government to increase the GST to 15% while compensating the low paid and provide tax cuts for personal income or company tax. So the Grattan Institute shows it can be done. Now, under this model, a higher GST would raise $27 billion a year with most of it earmarked for compensation. That leaves $6 billion a year that could be used to cut marginal rate or lower company taxes by two or three percentage points. And according to the report, $8 billion of a $27 billion raise would go to increase welfare payments. Another $8 billion could be used to reduce the lowest income tax rate from 90% to 16.5% and take the second lowest from 32.5% to 30.5%. And the states get $5 billion, leaving $6 billion to cut marginal income tax rates in all brackets by 1 percentage points, reduce company tax by 2 to 3 percentage points, or cut the rate of state-based tariff duties by a third. And all of this, of course, comes in the lead-up to the COAG meeting, which canvasses various options for GST. Now, former Treasurer Peter Costello has warned against upping the GST. And in this morning's AFR, Gary, uh, Scott Morrison is saying, if we can't get agreement from the states, we're going to go ahead with it anyway. You know, they'll go ahead with looking at it, but I think in the end, uh, they're not going to do it. Well, he didn't actually say we're going to do it. Morrison's very careful about that. Now, according to a Deloitte report, Australian manufacturing has become less competitive compared to its global 
peers and it's going to get worse. The report says uh, Australia could become less competitive over the next five years, while the US is beginning to become the most competitive country in the world, overtaking China. Now, Deloitte's 2016 Global Manufacturing Competitive Index shows Australia has fallen five places from 16 to 21 in the past two years. And within five years, that ranking is expected to fall another place down. And so that's that's a bit of a worry. Now, the price of iron ore has tumbled for the ninth straight session. Analysts are beginning to debate the prospect of a fall into the 20s. At the end of the latest session, benchmark iron ore for media delivery to the port of Tianjin in China was trading at a new 10-year low of $38.30 a tonne. That's down from 1.3% from its previous close of $38.80. And the last two months have produced arguably the most painful period of iron ore produced through the 18-month bear market. Prices have tumbled from above $55 a tonne, now into the 30s. That's a price where only the majors, like BHP Billiton and Rio, uh, can make a profit. Fortescue's still be in there too because he's got a new processing uh, system and uh, he reckons he can process the ore for $16 a tonne. Worryingly, though, in the wake of this commodities route, Anglo-American has unveiled plans for a sweeping restructuring of its businesses it says is going to result in the loss of 85,000 jobs. And the plan includes asset sales, large cost cuts and a suspension of dividends payments in a bid to weather a slump in commodity prices. The company says asset sales and the closure of unprofitable businesses would leave it with a workforce of 50,000. That's down from 135,000 today. And the job cuts are far greater than those announced in July when it expected to lose 53,000 positions. And it's going to take, take place over several years years and expectations the total workforce will be down to 92,000 by 2017 but they're not giving any time frame for when they expect it to get up to um, up to 50,000. In short coals on the nose. It's a bit of a worry. Now Australia's construction centre expanded for a fourth consecutive month in November but the pace of growth has slowed from October. According to new data the Australian Industry Group's performance construction index printed to 50.7 points it's a 1.74 from the level in October when the index rose for only the third time this year and the Australian industry group said the pace of expansion was marginal and the slowest since overall conditions returned to growth in August. And across the four subsectors in the index, apartment building was again expanding solidly in a rate that was only slightly below October's 10-year high level. So apartment building is actually keeping Australia's building industry going. And of course, a lot of those are empty. Now, uh, job ads in newspapers and online have increased the fourth month in a row. According to the ANZ Job Advertisement Series, job ads rose 1.3% for the month, 12.3% over the year, and ads on the internet rose 1.4%, while ads in newspapers slipped 4.3%. Meanwhile, China's Lui Medical Group, uh, L-U-Y-E Medical Group, has acquired Australia's third largest healthcare operator called Healthcare, H-E-A-L-T-H-E, Care. The sale price has not been disclosed. The media is reporting it's worth about $938 million. By acquiring healthcare from private equity firm Archer Capital, Lui is getting a company that operates 17 hospitals with more than 1,800 beds across Australia. It has revenues of more than $500 million. Now, under Archer, healthcare had been expanding with acquisitions including Townsville Private in 2014 and Rabina Private this year. And this deal, of course, takes advantage of Australia's recently signed free trade agreement with China and positions Lou to establish healthcare companies across the region. And the deal will be completed in the first quarter of 2016. So from cattle farms to hospital beds. Exactly. More and more intrusion into the... The Chinese uh, are moving in, yeah. Now, Madrid-based infrastructure giant Ferrovial has made another bid to acquire detention centre operating broad spectrum, formerly known as... Transfield Services, and it's offering $715 million. That's $1.35 a share. And that's uh, 59% more than Broad Spectrum's closing price last Friday. It's also below the Spanish company's $2 a share offer, which was rejected by the then Transfield in December. Now, the issue is that Broad Spectrum's shares crashed over the last 12 months, halving in value, and the board has told shareholders to take no action 
and to wait until they get advice. But the media is saying Broad Spectrum is expected to reject it again. And finally, Gary, the future of Clive Palmer's business empires looks shaky after a West Australian judge rejected his $48 million bid from his estranged business partner, Citic, and his company, Queensland Nickel, is now talking to the Queensland government for a handout. And uh, talks have been ongoing. The Queensland government is saying, OK, let's see your books. <laughs> and Uncle Clive's not going to do that. Uh, no, no. So it's going to be very interesting to watch. But uh, Clive is talking about the company closing down and costing jobs. And uh, the Queensland government is saying, OK, let's keep talking. Yeah. Uh, I, the one thing about Clive is he's never dull. No, no. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's good. And next week, we're going to talk to David Hickey from Meltwater. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at Talking Biz or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.